Please turn with me now to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, and the first seven verses. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is perfect in every detail. And it all tells us about Christ. And more particularly, Lord, it is very visible in this type that we have of the rock that was struck, the rock which brought forth this life-giving water in the midst of a dry and thirsty desert. And so, Lord, we pray that we might receive these things, that we might understand and be instructed about Christ, and moreover, indeed, to drink from him, to receive his goodness and life from it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we come now to Exodus chapter 17 in this first seven verses concerning the water from the rock at Meribah. Now with it we immediately think of two other texts in scripture. There is a similar incident in Numbers chapter 20 which looks very, very similar indeed but if you look carefully you understand that these are two different episodes and this one taking place much later on but yet it does shed a little light on this one, and we will look at it for comparison. And then there's the explanation of this typology of both what is here in Exodus and also Numbers, the explanation of that in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, most of you probably know what typology or types are, but let me just remind you again that typology is not some strange alchemy sort of way in which we interpret Scripture, but things that God himself has placed there uh, and apart from which we would not understand Christ. Uh, Christ is the great and, and uh, infinite subject of all things. He is at the center there. You can imagine maybe the center of a, of a star that has infinite energy and infinite light on every wavelength imaginable. Uh, but you cannot possibly look at that and stare at that and comprehend that. It's, it's simply too much. And so for us to, as finite creatures, to grasp 
the breadth and the depth and, and the very, all the attributes and aspects and offices of Christ. He gives us these types uh, in, in various ways that we might see what Christ is like. And so here we have that Christ is like a rock, but he's no ordinary rock. He is a life-giving rock, a rock from which water comes, which is not ordinary. But a rock that can be struck and must be struck in order for that water to come forth. Friends, that is a beautiful and wonderful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we must feed on this evening as we consider him in the rock. So I pray it will be of use to us. Well, the titles very simply is Water from the Rock, with these three points. Nothing has changed. God's gracious remedy, the rock was Christ. First, nothing has changed. Second, God's gracious remedy. Third, the rock was Christ, as we consider water from the rock. So first of all, nothing has changed. Sad to say, that's the story. In verse 1, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Well, that's not surprising, right? They are still in the wilderness, in the dry and thirsty land, the, the flinty rocks surrounding them. They, there is no natural water, or not much of it at least. Whatever it is, is few and far between. That was the case last chapter. It's still the case now. This, they are there in this inhospitable wilderness because crossing it was a means by which they were going to be saved. They were going into the promised land. They hadn't come there yet. They hadn't come to the land flowing with milk and honey. They were there in the dry and thirsty wilderness. That hadn't changed. And let me say, it was God's will that they were there. It was, notice, according to the commandment of the Lord that they were there. Let us not forget that this is no accident. At this point, they had not misled themselves to go a wrong way and to be lost in the wilderness. They were there at the commandment of the Lord and the direction of the Lord in this place lacking water. That hasn't changed. You know what else hasn't changed? God. God has not changed since the previous chapter. Our, the eternal author of all life has not changed his character since last night. He's not lost his power, his ability to provide for him, nor has he changed in his attitude to his own beloved people, which he was going to such great trouble to redeem. He's not changed. He has already demonstrated more than once that he was both willing and able to provide for them no matter what. Impossible situation of being between a rock and a hard place in the, the, the sea in front of them and the sea of, of Pharaoh's army behind them. He's able to provide a way. A place with no food. He is able to rain down bread from heaven. A place with no water. For perhaps two million people he is able to provide abundantly for them and for their animals. He is able, he is willing, and he hasn't changed. But you know what else hasn't changed? Besides the situation, God himself, the, the worst of it, that, that's the situation, there's nothing sad about that. The fact that God doesn't change is one of the great, wonderful truths that we confess. And the sad thing is that the people haven't changed. People have not changed at all. In verse 2, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? 
There's this, unfortunately, they, although they had already seen the Lord at work in so many ways, and in fact, it was just recently, the last thing that happened to them was another, uh, in fact, the last two things were miraculous provisions of water in different ways, yet they're back at it. They haven't changed. It's done them no good. These object lessons, the, the, the sermon that was preached in the most powerful ways did them absolutely no good, and they're still up to their old tricks of complaining against Moses and against God. And notice, by the way, the connection between contending with Moses and tempting the Lord. These things, one is tantamount to the other. We should be reminded that indeed, if, as the ordinances that God has set in place, the word of God, sometimes we, 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 we make our complaint against the word of God, sometimes we make our complaint against the servant of God who is delivering faithfully the word of God. But we must remind ourselves these things are tantamount indeed to tempting the Lord. But it progresses to something even worse than this contention, than this complaint, because the thirdly, or in this, uh, in this first point, but in verse 3 it says, The people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, beloved, it's bad enough what they were, were doing thus far. But to impugn the motives of Moses in such a way. Moses, who is minding his own business in the wilderness with his own family, called by God to go redeem the people who were there as slaves in this horrible land to save their lives, who had already suffered so much from these people. And now to say, the reason why you've done this is because you wanted to murder us is pretty bad. It tells you, in fact, that their hearts had not changed. If anything, they had become hardened in their ways, which is a dreadful thing. Well, nothing has changed with the situation with God or with the people, sadly, in the last point. But let me then move to the second point quickly, which God has a gracious remedy for them. God's gracious remedy Verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Such was their bitter complaint. Such was their accusation, which would be true. It would be just. In fact, if Moses were, were guilty as charged, if in fact his plan, cunning plan, were in fact to bring the people out into the wilderness in order that he might kill them, for whatever reason, I don't know. But if that were true, then he should have been stoned. It's It's right. And that's the seriousness of the accusation that is being thrown around. And friends, we must remind ourselves indeed of the power and the poison and the, the great temptation of the tongue. That we should be very careful about these things. Here the words had passed from their lips, the wicked words that, that the intent was murderous. And now they're about ready to stone Moses. And had they done so, they would have been guilty of his blood, that is for, for sure. Well... Let me say again that the Lord would have been well. I said that this morning, didn't I? The Lord would have been well within his rights, well within justice to make an end of them all. As soon as the people cried out with one voice, crucify, crucify, that should, could have well have been the end for them. And God would have been utterly just in so doing. And beloved, so it is here. 
As these people make their complaint against Moses, who was patently acting in accordance with the directive of God, doing exactly as he been called, where is the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke in this? The angel of the Lord, he is there. They're merely following him. It plainly says they were in this place because of the commandment of the Lord. They knew that. As they made their complaint against Moses, they were absolutely tempting the Lord in it. Tempting him, indeed. And he would have been well within his rights to have made an end of them once and for all. Or at least the leaders who are making this complaint. And soon enough, he will come to the end of his very, very long patience. And eventually he will make an end of the complainers. But at this moment, it is the day of mercy and grace to them. And I say this because the justice of God is so often impugned by ignorant men. Whenever we come to the subject of, of hell, for instance, the mercy and the, the goodness of God is called into question. And people speak with, with feigned fury and, and, and sadness and so forth, and as if their sense of justice is being offended by the fact that our God sends people to hell. Yes, he does. He is just and right in so doing. And the only thing that we should be amazed by is not that a just and holy God will eventually bring unrepentant sinners to their well-deserved doom eternally, but rather that he's not done so already. And so it is in this place. I am amazed that the Lord's response was not something along the lines of what he eventually gets to, which is to send them fiery serpents to kill them, which is to open up the ground beneath them, to just turn them into hell immediately, or any of the other various things that happened to them, but rather to respond favorably, favorably. It's an amazing thing, and we should be amazed at the forbearance and mercy of God in it. In verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. And take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. His response, because he's a gracious, loving, good God, is to say, Moses, I will give you the means of life and of mercy and grace in your hands, I want you to go use them on behalf of this sinful people. Once again, Moses taking, even as we are focused on the the rock as the picture and type of Christ, we have Moses playing his part as as the mediator, the intercessor, and the Lord is putting into his hands the means of the salvation of the people. And he says, go, go use these things in order to save these people, though they do not deserve it. Though they do not deserve it. And in this, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. That's what he does. He goes and he strikes. Again, that is very different, we'll see, from the situation in Numbers. He does what he has been called to do. He's obedient to it. And so water comes and saves the people. Once again, God demonstrating his ability and willingness to provide for them, however unworthy they are. Because, friends, this is our gospel. The gospel is not new in the New Testament. There are aspects of it, the new covenant, there are aspects that are new, but the core of it, which is God's rich salvation given graciously to those who absolutely do not merit it or are worthy of it in the slightest, but actually demerit it in every way that they could, utterly unworthy of these things, that is simply the way God deals with his people. 
always has been that way, always shall be. And we should glory in these things. We should bless the Lord as we consider the greatness of it. And as we go, as we continue through Moses, as we carry on in other books of the Old Testament, I hope that our sense of these things grows. I'm going to mention again in the application, as we come to the 8th anniversary of our church, where are we? Have we moved on? Are we still stuck in the same chapter? Are we, as our understanding of the, the love of Christ of his depths of mercy to sinners such as ourselves, our understanding even of the depth of our own depravity, past and present, has that increased? And is our, our recognition and our estimation of, of what God has done for us in Christ, has that increased as well? Are we, are we, have we moved a few steps closer? Are we still in the same place? Well, nothing has changed is both good and bad. God has given them a gracious remedy. And let us now consider the type, because the rock was Christ, and that's really the focus of these things. Let us consider that image, that the rock was Christ. I say again, take in your hand this rod which you struck the river and go, and I will stand before you there. He will notice that. I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. You have this picture of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ standing. Moses, go ahead. He is standing on the rock. And he said, Moses, go ahead and hit this rock upon which I stand. What is that showing us? You don't have to be a genius to figure that out. What is being enacted, what is being typified before us is indeed the Father striking Christ with the, the rod in order that he might be a blessing to the people. This rod, you know, that has done so many things, it is a symbol of power, a symbol of authority, and yes, of correction and of discipline. And thankfully, in this case, it was the rock rather than the angel of the Lord. Moses would not have dared to take in hand the rod to strike the almighty angel of the Lord in all of his might and glory. And whatever appearance that he might have had, whether of the pillar or some other appearance, and rather the rock upon which he stood. But friends, when we consider that, we have to understand the worthiness of that which was broken for our behalf. We say this was merely a rock, and if we think of it merely as a rock, then we say, well, well, it was broken. Fair enough. There's lots of rocks in the wilderness. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why whenever we come to that in the gospel, when we come, for instance, to John chapter 3, what is emphasized to us is that he is the only begotten Son of God, pointing us to two things simultaneously. One, that he is indeed the begotten Son of God. There are many of those who deny the idea of the eternal begettedness of the Son. But friends, that is what the, the church has always confessed and what the Bible so clearly teaches that the, the Father from all eternity, uh, that the Son, uh, the, is, He is eternally begetting the Son and the, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And that is why, indeed, that The Father is the Father, and the Son is the Son. How could it be otherwise than this eternal begetting? And so it teaches that, yes, He is begotten. It doesn't just mean unique. But beyond that, it does mean the only begotten, the precious one. There is none other like Him. 
There's nothing more precious in the universe than this one son that, the Lord, that, that our God had and has. And that is the one that he brings forward to us and says, I'm willing that this rock be broken. I'm willing that this, this rock be struck in order that you might live. And that's a powerful image. Even as we connect both the morning and the evening, as we see the Lord Jesus Christ there about to be led away, the most precious thing that the Father had. And he says, I present this rock to you, my unworthy people, sinners of each and every one of you may be. And I myself am going to strike him and break him and bring him to death in order that coming flowing from his side, the blood and the water that will give you life, that will sustain you in the dry and thirsty land and bring you eternally into Emmanuel's land, into land flowing with milk and honey. This is our Christ. This is our God. Now let me say, I mentioned I was going to say something about Numbers chapter 20. I'll just read that particular verse, Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Take the rock, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water, and you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Friends, this is no mistaken transposition of the same story. They are very different stories, particularly and mainly because what is commanded is patently different. In the first story, in Exodus, in our chapter 17, it is about striking the rock with a rod. That was a commandment. And in Numbers chapter 20, it's about speaking to the rock. Do you understand why? Because the rock has already been struck. It already been struck. They've come back probably to the same place. And the rock had been struck once. And there's no need to strike it again. And that was what is exactly so wrong and so disobedient of the way Moses dealt in that case, striking the rock not just once but twice. That is why he was then forbidden from entering the promised land because of his disobedience and particularly because of his unbelief. He had been told merely to speak to the rock and it would again bring forth water to save them all. He didn't believe it. Friends, it's that kind of unbelief that gives the Roman Catholic Church its, its, its oxygen. You know that the idolatrous Roman clergy imagines that they recreate the sacrifice of Christ on each and every time that they do their Mass. They sacrifice Him anew. They put Him to death again because they do not have the faith to receive the reality that once is good enough. They in the default setting of the human heart somewhere, we, we think that something that has happened in the past isn't good enough for the present. And friends, that is unbelief. Unbelief. Christ, our rock, was struck once, once only, and it is done forever. And it is neither necessary, nor is it possible, and it is certainly not seemly for such a sacrifice ever to be attempted again. And it is for that reason, that disobedience and that heart of unbelief that merited such a severe rebuke from the living God. 
It has to be viewed in that way. Otherwise, we can't understand why was the Lord so severe, this merciful God so severe to, to Moses, his friend, this type of Christ for such a minor infraction. It was no minor infraction, friends. If you come to Christ, you have to understand he was struck once by the Father and never again. And all that is done now is, is that the rock is spoken to and he yields forth all of his life-giving water. We come to him, don't we? And the, the double way in which we receive from his word and we also respond in prayer. And that's the way in which we speak to the rock today. We speak to him in prayer. Your prayers and mine. As reminded in the course of the conference, by my calling not only to declare the word of God to you, but to present you to God in the corporate prayers of this church. And as I pray for the salvation of unbelievers, as I pray for the salvation of covenant children that are before us, I'm speaking to the rock. And we come to him in faith that that's enough. And that the life-giving waters will come from that. Let me also say again, mention as we consider this rock of Christ, the explanatory. We don't always have, in every case, some verse that explains the type. Some of them are pretty, pretty obvious. But in most cases, we have a verse somewhere that explains what these types are. And 1 Corinthians 10, again, I, I mentioned, all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from that spiritual rock. And notice this, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The rock that followed them. No ordinary rock, is it, that a rock that follows him? Well, this was the great picture, of course, of Christ as he was with them in the desert. He hadn't, he hadn't consigned them to go die on their own. Right? That was the accusation by this unbelieving people who, look, it's bad enough when people are unbelieving regarding Christ whom they cannot see at all. These people had the pre-incarnate Christ there in the form of the pillar, and they still disregarded that but let me say he had certainly not sent them there to die he was, wa he was walking every step with them and we must understand that as well because God has sent us into a dry and thirsty land in this world and times will be difficult there will be challenges and trials of every kind Christ is with us and friends we must not neglect that we must understand that the rock is there following or leading in different ways. He's doing both of those things. He is a tender shepherd. And in different circumstances, uh, the shepherd goes before and sometimes goes beyond, behind, depending on what is requisite. And Christ fulfills all of those things with it. But what we know is that he is with us every step of the way. That rock, the rock which was struck the rock which brought forth that water, the rock was the same one that continued to be with them all throughout their journey, and that rock was Christ. Well, those were the points. Now some applications. The obvious one is that we ought to drink from the rock. And it says those people back then drank from the same spiritual drink. And let me say, if any of those people survived... At that point, because God made sure that they had come to a place in which they had run out of water. And that's why they were crying out to the Lord as they were. And so if any of them were now going to survive, it was because they had drunk from that rock. The fact that any of them ever made it to the promised land was utterly predicated and dependent upon the, their actual reception of the water. There's a, the old saying, you can lead a, a horse to water but can't make him drink. Well, that's very true. 
God presented that water, and theoretically, I, I hope that this wasn't the case. I trust it wasn't the case. But theoretically, if there's someone so obstinate as, as to say, I will not drink from that particular source, I'd rather die, then they would. And they would never make it to the promised land because that was the appointed means. Christ was the appointed Savior. He was struck. The water came from him, and they had to drink or die. Friends, it's like this morning then. Choose Christ. Drink from the rock. It only does you any good if you drink it. You know, the supper, as I've mentioned, the Lord's Supper, it only does you any good if you choose it and Christ together. You can't have one without the other, but you, you must choose it and receive it. That's a great, of course, distinction between baptism, which is God's initiative to put his name upon his covenant children. Presented by believing parents. And it is at his initiative. And the distinction between that then and the Lord's Supper. Which we with our own volition must reach out and receive the elements. and, And actually partake of them. That's something that you must do. Is an active reception of these things. It only does you any good if you actually drink. And so it is with Christ. Now that is true of salvation itself. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And and I I heard something recently with regard to uh, um, uh, pro-life. Recent developments in the the States. And one of the things that uh, that the organization was trying to refute is that they're only interested in birth. And not of the whole life of the child. And how the Christian church must make sure that we demonstrate. That we care not only that babies are born safe rather than killed in their mother's wombs, but also that we, we care and will do what is necessary for them to, to carry on in their, their life and not be abandoned or neglected uh, after their birth. Well, that's very true. But so it is with our spiritual life. There are churches that seem that sometimes you get the impression the only thing that the Lord is concerned about is your birth, and then you're left to your own devices. Well, friends, that is not the case. This rock is there. It has been only once and only once has it been split, has it been struck for you. But it must continually yield water for you. And you must continually drink from this water or you will die. It does not matter that they had made it thus far. It does not matter that they were granted spiritual birth as it were, as they were baptized through the, the sea as they came through. They were all baptized, you see. But if they did not now drink and continually drink from their source of water in Christ, they would surely die before they made it to the promised land. The same Christ that brought you in the first place to spiritual life is the only one who will see you through the end. And those two things, the sovereignty of God of bringing his elect to salvation in the first place and then upholding them in the perseverance of the saints, these things are, are intricately and inextricably connected. They go together. And you and I must continually receive of Christ. He was good enough. He is good enough. He was necessary for our life. He is necessary for life. And we must continually be drinking. Let us not be those who neglect these things. Let us not be those who neglect the means of grace. You know, again, let me say again, what is the life of the believer typified? Not as a land flowing with milk and honey. That's our mistake. We keep thinking that that's, that's the picture of the Christian life in the promised land. No, it isn't. 
The picture of the promised land is in the wilderness, the dry and thirsty, the howling, the flinty, those kind of words that apply. That's our situation. We need Christ now as much as we did the last chapter, if not more so. And I hope that in the ways that we consider, in the ways that we progress, that we are even more desirous. We are even more availing ourselves of every opportunity. We are even more devouring of the means of grace now than we were in the years before. We must drink from that rock and continue to do so. Secondly, don't give in to temptation. Pretty simple, I understand. I understand there's more involved than simply saying don't give in to temptation, but I, I mean it. Don't do it. You know, that's the, the rest of, uh, I mentioned in this verse, in verse 7, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? They had given in to temptation. And that's why in that very verse, or the section in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it goes on to explain these things. The fact that it identifies Christ as being the rock that's just that's the doctrine section. And then there's an application. And the application is much longer than the doctrine. And here's, here's one of the, the applications. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as also they lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of, the, as some of them. As it written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them also did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. What is he saying in all these things? He says, now all of these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages had come. Now, these things did happen to them, and they were necessarily part of the great work of redemption, the great story of how God has dealt with his people. But if anything, the larger and greater purpose is for the rest of us. Living in the age of Christ, reading these words, they're there for our example and admonition. And we would not benefit from the word of God. We would not receive the use that God himself had intended for it if we did not also take warning from this. There must always be before you the double-edged sword of both the mercy and the severity of God. You see? We cannot decide to focus our attention exclusively on either side of these things. We are amazed at the, at the graciousness and the long-suffering and patience of God in dealing with his people this way. But he didn't stay that way forever. Even God in his unbelievable... I mean, Moses sometimes seem to run out of patience before him. And others would have done before, far before so. Moses was the most humble uh, of, of all the earth. But even he eventually then brought down judgment and destruction to these who were sinning. And we must think that. We must understand that both of these things are true. That God absolutely is gloriously gracious but that we should never take it to the extent that we are emboldened in our sin. And friends, that's the issue. If you know more about the grace of God, and I hope you do, I hope you also understand more of the privilege of the grace that is extended to you. 
I hope you also understand more of the, the purpose of the grace that has been extended to you for the purpose that you walk in good works and that God has given you a holistic salvation that includes your sanctification and your growing in holiness and all of the means, all of the instruments and the tools by which the resources to keep you on the right track. It goes on to say this. I don't know if I've ever actually noticed that before. Uh, in this 1 Corinthians chapter 10, sometimes I skip right on to the end. But notice this in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There you are. That's God's own inspired application to the, the story, these stories of what happened to the people in the wilderness is to remind us that we should never have in our minds that some temptation has come to me of which I have no ability to withstand. But God promises. He promises that there is a way out. And we must believe it. It must be an article of faith. Uh, in the time, Satan is such a master at this, he paints us into a corner, quite literally. Sometimes he paints imaginary corners. We imagine that we're stuck. And we must succumb. But friends, it's not true. It's never been true. And we must believe God rather than Satan. Believe God rather than ourselves, our own hearts. Because our own hearts will come up with 101 reasons why this particular temptation is the one that no one could possibly resist. Certainly not us today. We have to say, no, this word of God is true. And we must receive it in faith as well. There is a way of escape. Friends, there's always, always a way of escape. Do you really think that the living God, who is able to make a way in this sea, could not make a way of escape for his people? Of course he can. Thirdly, stop complaining. Again, another stark, very plain thing. But friends, this is the word of God. It speaks very bluntly to us, and it does us no good to, to be mealy-mouthed about it. Stop complaining. In verse 10 of the, the text in 1 Corinthians, nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. As I said, this is nothing new. The fact that they're complaining, that is nothing new for the children of Israel. There was no change in their character from the beginning of Exodus until this incident 17 chapters later. They started out as people who were complainers, and they're still complainers. And one wonders if they're even a little bit hardened by this point. Now, some of us, have been given to complaining in the past. Church, as I mentioned, is coming up on its eighth anniversary. Some of us have not been content, maybe most of us. We've given in to complaining in times past. And if someone were to write an accurate and full history of this church and all of our actions and words and so forth like that, and they opened the chapter in, in 2009 and read, and they read Person X, complained against the Lord. And person Y complained against the Lord. And a whole group of them actually complained in various ways about their circumstances. Friends, where are we eight years later? Are we still there? Or have we learned something from the mercy and goodness of God? Have we learned something that he will never leave us nor forsake us? And that to give in to such complaining is is wickedness and idolatry The Lord is not pleased with it. 
You know, Philippians 2.14, it's one of our ABC Bible verses, one our family knows very well. Do all things without complaining and disputing. And it goes on to say this, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Worldliness takes many different forms. Please do not think the only worldly people are those who dress in ostentatious clothes and have ostentatious things and all the rest of it. That's not the case. Worldliness has many dimensions, and one of the most worldly things that we can possibly do is to complain, because that's what all them, all those people out there, that's what they do. That's the only thing that they know how to do, because they're so self-centered, they're so selfish, they're without God in this world. They live in that same dry and flinty land, and they, and they find every reason in the world to complain against them, and against the God they don't believe in. The way to shine is a light in this world. The way to glorify God in this world, no matter what your calling in this is, might be, is not to complain or dispute, but to be joyful and to give thanks as a people who are able to see Christ, though we cannot see him with our visible eyes, to see him with us every step of the way, providing all that is needed for us. And to be joyful. Even though we're walking in that dry and flinty land I mentioned. Stop complaining. Fourthly and finally, expect to be misunderstood. Friends, I guess in some sense it's bad news. But I hope in another way it's good news. That we should expect in this world to be misunderstood. I know it is extremely disheartening when you throw yourself into some aspect of the Lord's business, some aspect of what God has called you to do, only to have it misconstrued and misinterpreted in the most malicious sort of ways. Sadly, that is part and parcel of the work. Moses is most certainly our example here. How could anyone say what they said about Moses? In that, in essence, he hated them. He planned their destruction. His whole plan all along was to bring them into the wilderness so that they would die, they and their children and their livestock. It's it's dreadful even to think of. But they said it. And these were God's people. Friends, what about the world around us? Between those two things, between those two entities, yes, the world certainly, and even the people of God, are best. That's Matthew Henry says, many that have not only designed well, but done well for their generation, have had their best services thus misconstrued, and their patience thereby tried by unthinking, unthankful people. Again, not not the, the off day, not the thing that didn't work, but the thing that was your best service perhaps in this world, in this life, misconstrued and misconstructed and blasphemed. We have to expect it. We have to expect it. And in so doing, not only do we have fellowship with Christ, if that happens to us, but but fellowship with Moses, but fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as we heard this morning. The words spoken against him, all that he had designed, all that he had done, misconstrued, misconstructed, and blasphemed. And that's okay. The day of reckoning, the day of judgment, the final word is yet to come. And there will come a day in which all is known. 
and all will indeed be well. That's the place we're going to. Because we won't always be in the dry and thirsty land. Christ didn't bring us out into the desert to die. You understand that. It wasn't because there weren't enough graves in Egypt for us. Not enough places or quotas in hell. It was because he intended to bring us all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. To this great promised land. And there indeed all shall be well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we must immediately confess as we consider these things that in many ways we are no better than these people. We have complained against you, at least in our hearts, in many ways. And Lord, we are certainly no more meritorious, no more deserving of your goodness and mercy than any of these people. Probably less so, Lord, as we have greater light. Indeed, we have seen much more than they. We have seen, seen the end of their journey. We know that they arrive in the end. And Lord, we have seen Christ live and die and be risen again the third day, according to the scriptures and the prophecies. And so, Lord, we have much more reason to believe the word that is given to us. But we have often failed to do so. But how we pray, Lord, that we would consider Christ And we'd see this rock that was struck for our behalf. And Lord, that the only source of life is to be found. And we pray that we would drink of him and drink deeply. Not just sip at the beginning to have a taste of life, but Lord, that we would continue to drink even more and more deeply of him throughout all of our days. And that you indeed would go before us and behind us, guarding us in every way, and leading us safe to that promised land. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.